Hello and welcome to module six of the Global Solutions course. So this week's module is about the foundations of the modern world. So we live in a society today and in a political landscape that allows us in the United States to freely express our opinion and to exercise our political choice over candidates uh, of political parties who then um, form a government and rule the country for a certain period of time. So one of the basic qualities you could say of a modern country uh, like America is that it embodies a lot of freedoms for its citizens. Those freedoms are embodied in the Constitution or in other countries where there's a liberal democracy in the Bill of Rights or their Constitution. And essentially, they speak in similar terms and they allow similar freedoms. One is that we are all equal, basically that we are born equal. Maybe through time, things will distinguish uh, differences and we will achieve different levels or manifest different potentials. But in terms of how we are viewed, at the moment of birth, all of us are equal. Of course, there are advantages of situation and wealth and, and other things as well, innate abilities or um, innate uh, drawbacks, things that you might be born with and so on. So there's various ways in which that state of freedom can be affected and moderated. But the basic proposition is that we are all born equal and therefore we have equal rights. Now, the important thing to realize there is that that is a very radical idea and that is not the way that society was run uh, most human societies were run around the world for many many centuries we talked earlier about feudalism about the hierarchies that were established with the monarchy at the top and then various tiers of social class or social caste usually going all the way down to uh, a peasantry uh, you know, who were at the lowest level. And there was no sense in which we were all born equal. In fact, the opposite was the proposition. We are not all born equal. We're all born into a station, such as peasant, landowner, nobility, monarchy, or other sort of ways of defining different tiers of social hierarchy and caste. Um, we're all born into that and we have very little freedom of movement within that. So that's how things were run for a very long time. Uh, we talked earlier about this sudden explosion of productivity being a essential ingredient to establish freedom in order to bring about human progress and create the kind of modern society. It was because of increases in productivity, the agricultural revolution, then the industrial revolution, massive increase of human productivity meant lots of people could do 
a big range of different specializations and things. It created the space in which there was this explosion of thinking and uh, social reform and you know, printing books and challenging the existing ideas and overthrowing some of the conventions, some of the orthodoxy and some of the control over what we could and couldn't do. And that included what we could and couldn't say, what we could think, what we couldn't think, you know. All these things were very limited for a very long time in human history. So what are the foundations of the modern world? Well, one of them is the period of the Enlightenment that really did challenge the old order, brought in new ideas, fresh ways of looking um, at things, and really was, uh, for many people, see uh, that the age of Enlightenment was um, at the beginning of, in a sense, the path to the modern world. Uh, I mean, the Age of Enlightenment was a philosophical movement that dominated the world of ideas in Europe in the 18th century and really centered on the idea that reason is the primary source of authority and legitimacy. The movement advocated such ideas as liberty, progress, tolerance, fraternity, constitutional government, and separation of church and state. And this is also the time in which science came to play a leading role in enlightenment uh, discourse and thought. And really there was, uh, you know, sort of a golden age of scientific inquiry, scientific discovery, uh, all of which would be feeding into eventually the Industrial Revolution. So the Enlightenment has long been hailed as the foundation of the modern Western political and intellectual culture, brought about political modernization in the West. In religion, Enlightenment era uh, was a, a response to the preceding century of religious conflict in Europe. Um, Historians of race, gender, and class note that Enlightenment ideals were not originally envisaged as universal in today's sense of the word, although they did eventually inspire the struggles, the fights of the rights of people, of colour, women, the working masses, and really overthrowing the idea of that you were born into a particular station and that was it. So out of the Age of Enlightenment, other philosophers and thinkers really uh, came about, one of which is John Locke. So <coughs> in the presentation for this week, you have um, a couple of videos explaining, you know, the thinking and the uh, philosophy of John Locke and what that brought about. So you can see in, there's this massive shift away from the old structures from the old, and, the, and in a certain extent, the power of uh, religion to control the sphere of uh, thinking and thought and even the propositions of science. And we're all aware that, you know, that sometimes the modern uh, thinking and ideas or even uh, ideas about how the universe works or uh, switching the idea from the 
sun moving around the earth to the earth moving around the sun would be contentious and that you could suffer persecution because of that if it went against the doctrine of the dominant religion, uh, the papacy, Catholicism and so on. Uh, later on, of course, there are objections to that and there was new Protestant religions, but also there was new philosophies and a challenging of this control of the intellectual space or even the spiritual space and an opening up to new ideas, new thinkers, new rationalization of our world and definitely, as in the Age of Enlightenment, the primacy of reason, as in, what does that mean, the primacy of reason? It means that in order to accept something as true or to examine the nature of our existence and our uh, experience of the universe, we should predominantly use reason. We should investigate reason, how things work, have reasonable debate about them, and not take a position that this is how things are from um, you know a doctrinal point of view or a very limited point of view that doesn't really investigate the reality of our existence and use reason in order to do so. So that shift to the primacy of reason is a very important one. What does this all lead to really um, is the age of revolution and that's where things really heat up. So there's a section on that in this uh, week's module of the Age of Revolution. Throughout uh, many countries, and you'll be aware of, of some, um, of the Russian Revolution and other revolutions, the French Revolution, um, the Civil War in England, the American Revolution, they were really where the power structures of old were being overthrown, uh, principally monarchies and the feudal system, and they were an upsurge, an expression of the power of people and workers and the majority against the privilege and the control of the minority, whether that be a monarchy with the nobility or, or, or even a, um, a doctrine-led uh, control over the space of thought and really you know, overthrowing all of that and creating this new political uh, uh, systems and ways of government which recognize the innate rights of a human, that we should all be treated equally and respected uh, before the law, and that the, there was no being born into a set station for which then you had to be that for the rest of your life. So the age of revolution is very <coughs> important because it really does uh, represent very powerful forces that work through human society and many countries in the West, which then established um, new forms of government. Uh, so out of the age of revolutions, obviously, there are different forms of government that became dominant. Not all of them were modern uh, liberal democracies or liberal democracies. Some of them became 
authoritarian, such as in the, uh, the USSR, which, although it had a revolution in order to free up the peasantry, in order to overthrow the monarchy, it ended up establishing a very authoritarian state. And um, in an authoritarian state, uh, the power is still concentrated in the hands of uh, oligarchs or a very small and powerful group. And really, uh, the, the, it, you get a shift from what can be called uh, religious persecution to political persecution, because then, as we know, in the era of Stalin, um, not complying with the uh, ideals of the socialist state meant that you could be persecuted, and many were, and many lost their lives. So um, revolutions didn't always lead to uh, the liberties that they were promised. Um, but in many countries throughout Western Europe and in the United States, they did lead to the liberties that were promised, and they did lead to representative government. And that was a really important uh, development. So really out of that age of revolution, there, be, there was the liberal democracies, and then there was the alternatives, which were uh, very authoritarian in their nature. And even if you look at a modern map today, and there's a map in the slides, of the modern liberal democracies, you'll see that they are represented in various shades of blue. The deeper blue meaning that that's a full democracy, the lighter blue meaning it's a partial or flawed democracy, and then once you start getting into yellow and red, then you're looking at really non-representative government. And you can see for Russia, and particularly China, they're deeper into the red because they are authoritarian states that do not allow people to uh, fairly uh, express their political votes and their will in, a, in order to form representative government. So, um, talking about the liberal democracies though, um, this is an arena that we are currently in ourselves, but it's not necessarily arena that every, arena that everybody is in. So everyone will be working throughout the world within a particular political system, a particular culture. Um, you know, there will be the majority religions and the minority religions and so on. So, you know, the reason for going into the foundations of modern world is really because in order to change the world, in order to have fundamental transformation, it is actually important to understand what the system is that we're working with and also health, how healthy that system is. So it certainly is easier to bring about new policy and to change things in a liberal democracy where political representation and political will through the people uh, does actually have an influence on the government that is formed and the policies that are chosen. In an authoritarian regime, um, basically it's a small set of people who <coughs> decide the policies for the, for the country 
and really uh, no dissent is allowed. And so there's large swathes of the country and many, many people whose political views and votes really are meaningless. They don't have any influence over the formation of government or policy. Unfortunately, at this current time, uh, we have seen an extension of this authoritarianism. Um, China recently has exerted its uh, authoritarian uh, power over Hong Kong and is pretty much totally undermined and uh, suppressed what democracy there was in uh, Hong Kong. It was never particularly strong, but there was a certain degree of democracy in Hong Kong, and now that's been wholly undermined by China. And um, any dissident or anyone protesting against that um, can be arrested and imprisoned, and they certainly are being. Same for Russia, that um, the opposition are persecuted, uh, although people might get on the streets and protest, uh, the country is in the hands of very few oligarchs who control the political sphere and really don't allow representative government to emerge. This is a lot rather unfortunate for the world, and obviously for people who want political representation in their own country. And I have to say, in regards to China, this is probably one of the big, big um, situations of the century, is that China is emerging as a superpower, but as a superpower that is also an uh, authoritarian regime. And um, if you look at the landscape currently, you can see that, you know, we are evolving into a, almost like a Cold War situation with China, although it's not entirely the same because the amount of uh, economic integration that has occurred over the last 20 years or so means that both sides pay an, an economic cost if the relationship gets worse and worse, but it's definitely um, getting worse uh, quite uh, quite a lot uh, recently. Uh, one of the reasons for that, obviously, is China's human rights abuses against its minorities, which are severe and truly horrendous. Um, but, unfortunately, uh, you know, we have to be aware of the political sphere because we need policies. We need policies to address the global challenges of our time. And we need governments that are going to act on what is best for the longer term planning of uh, an economy and for resource use and for protecting the environment and the world. So what we need is healthy democracies. Healthy democracies are really uh, an important uh, cornerstone, a foundation for global transformation in a direction that really adjusts, uh, ad addresses all the issues, the justice issues, sustainability, sustainability issues and everything else. So that's a really important element. Uh, I think, therefore, you know, it's important to have a look at the health of democracies around the world and maybe to examine that in terms of America. And we definitely have challenges emerging which have led to the intelligence unit of The Economist downgrading America to the status of a flawed democracy for the first time. That's never happened before.
And there are reasons for it. First of all, one of them is the information ecosphere. The information ecosphere is basically everything that's put out there on social media, everything you will get uh, exposed to via college, but also via the media and news channels and so on. Now, what has happened clearly is that more and more people are being fed information that is untrue. That's the heart of the problem with the information ecosphere. There's been a vast proliferation. Um, I'm sure we're all aware of it. Um, obviously, the recent presidency of Trump highlighted that very, very much. A vast proliferation of inaccurate or false information um, through social media and also on mainstream broadcasters. Now, as regards to mainstream broadcasters, that's particularly a problem in America as opposed to Europe. Uh, because Europe or countries like Britain impose requirements for fairness, balance and accuracy in their national broadcasters. That used to be the case in the United States, but those requirements were removed. When they were removed, that gave rise to the new generation of shock jocks and um, people like Rush Limbaugh came into the forefront because during the um, 1980s, uh, these requirements for fairness and accuracy and so on were removed. Very, very bad idea. And we see where that has all led. Um, I have to say, personally speaking, that it just utterly appalls me when I see a mainstream broadcaster like Fox or other broadcasters whether they're on the right or the left, although I have to say that broadcasters like Fox are particularly bad, um, put out false or very, very biased information. Now, in my observation of the various channels, I would say that, and, you know, surveying independence, independent uh, uh, sites that monitor these things, then the worst offender is Fox, um, who definitely put out what could be called, uh, called misinformation, if not downright lies, uh, which is truly appalling, as well as being fundamentally biased in their editorial coverage of issues. Um, MSNBC and CNN are also fundamentally biased, and none of these uh, news organizations would survive in a European arena in a western european arena um certainly not in britain because they would all be in breach of the requirements uh, that you offer a fair balanced and accurate reporting you can only have a license to broadcast or you can only keep a license to broadcast if you report fairly accurately and non with uh, no obvious bias not a severe bias the way it works in most countries in the liberal democracies, you can have a tilt. You can be a little bit leaning to the left or a little bit leaning to the right, but you can't be fundamentally biased to the right or to the left. And you certainly can't put out false or misleading or inaccurate information and have a fundamental editorial bias. <clears throat> so this is a major issue, major issue in a liberal democracy. The whole point of what's called the fourth estate, 
the media and um, especially the big broadcasters is that they are standing apart from the government and offer um, a critique of the government and its policies and examination of them and an alternative point of view and also different points of view. Remember, in a liberal democracy, part of its core foundation is it allows people to express different points of view, to propose and advocate uh, for different paths, for different policies and so on. So accurate and fair information is a vital, vital component in that. Um, yeah, people can spin things, people can wrap things up so that they seem better or worse. Usually in the rules of the game in this arena, that's allowed for and everybody knows that goes on. But what you're not supposed to do and what shouldn't be allowed is just barefaced, inaccurate or mis uh, information, um, misleading information and, and lie lies uh, outright lying this is definitely not good not allowed and um, very destructive to a liberal democracy if it reach a, reaches a very very large scale which it has the other key thing to say there is that research shows that people read and view according to their bias so for instance if you happen to be someone with very conservative views, very much on the right of the political spectrum, you only watch news channels that are on the right, you only go to websites that are on the right, you only hear the views of the people on the right. You never expose yourself to alternative views and so on. Um, this is overwhelmingly what people do. So they only look at things that reinforce their point of view and agree with their point of view. Same for the people on the left, although there's evidence to suggest it's not quite as bad. Um, but there is nonetheless still a tendency to only look at, examine and be attracted to sites that reinforce uh, the point of view. So obviously, we can see why this is a problem because, of course, it's very divisive because there's no real debate. <coughs> if you're only looking at things that confirm your bias and your point of view, and so, and the opposition is only doing that, the gulf between you gets greater and greater. And you can see that in the evolution of American politics. And it's certainly happening elsewhere as well. Perhaps in America, it's more extreme. Um, and this is a real problem, and there's a lot of debate now uh, about the corruption of the information ecosphere and how this is weakening American democracy. And it's certainly one of the reasons cited for downgrading the strength of American democracy, the assessment of its strength. What's another big problem? Monetarization of politics. Basically, the fact that politicians have to raise huge amounts of money in order to um, win an election. Um, I don't know, maybe you know or maybe you don't. That's not how it is necessarily in a, a lot of countries where limits are put on the amount that you can spend as a candidate or others can spend. And that helps to reduce the amount of money that is required in order to uh, win a seat. This, this expenditure of unlimited amounts of absolutely enormous sums 
in order to uh, win an election is also corrosive, highly corrosive to democracy. Why? Because who, who gives the most money, quite a lot usually, is interested parties, big corporations, or lobbying groups backed by major businesses or corporations or interest groups. And what do we think happens when the candidate gets into office? What do they do? Well, they usually um, are pro-policies that uh, would be make their backers happy. Um, plain and simply, this is called corruption in any other country in the world. Um, and it's a bit of a marvel to observers of America that it's not really recognized or called corruption in America in the same way that it is elsewhere. Simple dynamic. A company gives you money to uh, win a seat, you win a seat, and then you introduce policies on behalf of that, com com on behalf of that company. That is not democracy. That is corruption. Um, now, there are shades of that towards something that's a little bit more reasonable, um, where there's a due process that's been followed and so on. And I don't think you could ever say that you wouldn't allow for lobbying from vested interests and uh, corporations and so on. But of course, we've reached a level where it is way over the top, way out of control and massively influential, influential on government policy. And there's research to show that the power of the average fight, uh, vote, voter in America is very low. The power of a corporation or the interest groups is very high when it comes to influencing government policy, the policies that actually get uh, decided on. So again, that's another reason uh, why a democracy is being weakened. The next one is gerrymandering. I don't know if you know that term, but it's basically redrawing political maps, the advantage of one party over another. <laughs> I hate to say it again, but it is true that, again, in America, it is astonishing that political parties or get to um, have an influence over the election boundaries and can redraw them to their own advantage. Uh, this is this is appalling. This is absolutely anti-democratic behavior. Um, an independent board should always be in control of redrawing boundaries for political elections. They should never be under the influence of political parties. Because what happens? Well, the political parties redraw the lines, so it's to their advantage. So quietly over the decades, what's happened in America is that these lines have been withdrawn. So in many areas, Republicans are more sure of their seat and also in Democratic areas too. But, uh, you know, it mainly has benefited Republicans. It also has benefited, benefited partially some Democrats as well. Um, but again, this is a very divisive thing because it stops places being swing uh, having the capacity to swing one way or another way. Continually redrawing boundaries means that it becomes more of a surefire thing for a Republican or a Democrat. And that's not good for a, um, for a democracy either. 
So the final one, obviously, is corruption. And really, I've spoken about that to a certain degree, but there is a specific slide on that. Um, that, that is more of a universal thing. So, um, meaning that it applies across the globe. So you see on the final, you know, in a slide, an assessment of corruption in the world. I mean, the two things that are really going to undermine being able to change the world, to have global transformation, is losing the power of democracy and corruption. So it's very difficult to do things that are a benefit for the future or for the wider population in a very corrupt country. Because in a very corrupt country, the policies are decided for the benefit of the few, not the many. Um, control is in the hands of the few, not the many. And, um, you know, money flows to the few, not the many. That's why it's corruption is there, because of the advantage it gives to those who are corrupt. So um, corruption is one of the big things that gets in the way a progress towards addressing the key issues to do with biodiversity loss, environment, getting rid of pollution, waste, policies that secure the future of humanity and the future of the planet. So corruption is a very big factor. And then whether we are in a healthy democracy or a weak democracy or no democracy, is also a very important factor. So, you know, these, these, these are really just going through foundational things to give us a, a view on this, to give us an oversight, because we have to think of these things. We have to see these foundational things. We have to realize that if we're to really change the world, if we're really to make a difference, on a large scale, then these elements of our existence, like the democratic health check, the corruption health check, are very, very important. We want democracy to spread across the world. We want democracy to be strong and healthy and uh, improve and be there for all the peoples of the world. We want the democ democratic countries to cooperate together to represent their people and the will of their people, and to plan for the whole world, and to plan for all the people of the world. So people in all countries need to have the basic rights, the rights of freedom, freedom of expression, freedom of political formation of parties, freedom for, to vote for whoever they wish to vote for, and the freedom that anybody can stand for a, a political position and has a chance to, um, to progress through the political system. These are just foundational and very key. So that's why even when we're looking at global solutions and we're looking at this wide range of different issues, um, we are considering how to change our world, how to fundamentally change the paradigm that rules the world. And for that, we do need uh, to reduce and get rid of corruption. We do need to have 
healthy and liberal democracies because liberal means the ability to reason through things, to have debate, for everybody to be represented, all minorities, all peoples, all cultures, all religions, all political groups to be in the arena together and to develop the vision, to develop the path forward that addresses the big issues of our time. Okay, well, um, do look through the various slides and their various links and enrich on the basis of understanding the foundations of the modern world. Okay, that's it for now. <laughs>